I had an introduction, um, but I scrapped it because I timed myself and uh, I went way over time. And so we're going to get straight to the meat of the message today. Um, the title for uh, today's sermon is You Must Be Ready. <laughs> Thanks, Zane. <laughs> um, and that's literally the heading for the passage that we're going to look at in my Bible. And so I thought, well, it captured the essence of the passage, so we're going to go with it. Um, so I want to emphasize something about the reality of what's going on here, uh, this, actually this evening, not this morning. Um, Mark said it last week, I'm going to say it again this week. Uh, we are about to read and hear from the Bible, specifically Luke 12, 35 to 48. And these are the words of God, okay? And I know many of you have head knowledge of that, um, but do you believe it with your whole being? Is it in your heart? Does your ambition and your desire reflect that reality? Do you think, this is crazy? I'm about to read the revelation of God to humankind. The same God that created the universe and that holds it by the word of his power. Without him, we don't exist. And he spoke to us. He gave us a book. And we would be wise to listen to it. Now what I'm doing here... (laughs) Preaching to you is a humbling task because now I've got to explain that to you. And so with that in mind, let's pray that he will speak through me and that you would hear. So Lord, many of us came here with things on our mind distracting us from you. And God, your word, may your word be like music to our ears and turn our hearts of stone into flesh. May the truths of your word be irresistible, resulting in action, not only for today, but for Monday morning and for the next week and for the next month. God, help us follow you because we need you and we can do nothing apart from you. God, help me get out of your way and may your Holy Spirit speak through me. And if your words fail, um, or if my words fail, Lord, may your words, which can never fail, be heard by everyone here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we're going to be looking at Luke 12, uh, 35 to 48. I think it's going to be behind me. Um, so if you've got your Bibles, grab them. Make sure that you're seeing what I'm saying is true. Because honestly, as far as controversial Bible passages go, um, this is pretty high on the offensive scale um, these days. And it's probably a message that many people, and I'm not saying you, but many people would prefer not to be part of the Bible. And so we're going to read it. And we're going to try to understand it. So that's Luke 12, 35 to 48. I'm going to read through the passage once, and then I'm going to go through it um, a second time and maybe pause in a few few points. So verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable to, to us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and to drink and to get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. I've heard it said that the Old Testament reveals a God of vengeance who does not refrain from pouring out his wrath upon the wicked. And the New Testament reveals a God of mercy and grace. There's Yahweh of the Old Testament, and then there's Jesus of the New Testament. Wrath over here, forgiveness over here. But what I have seen is that both the Old Testament and the New Testament reveal a unified depiction of who God is. He's a holy God who hates sin and delivers justice to the ungodly, but mercy and forgiveness to those who seek him. So we're just going to go through it again because this is a, it's a interesting passage. So, verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for action and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them if he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake blessed are those servants but know this that if the master of the house had known at what time the thief was coming he would not have left his house to be broken into you also must be ready because the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect so quick pause you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect besides giving us the warning here Jesus identifies himself as the master of the house. So let's keep that in mind. Continue in verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or for, to, for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master finds doing so when he comes. Now, in my opinion, Jesus doesn't really answer Peter's question the way he might have expected. And personally, I was left wondering what the servants were supposed to be doing, so... I thought I'd go over that. He, he answers the question with another question. So first he asks, who is the faithful and wise servant? And then the second part of the question gives us more details. The faithful servant is somebody Christ put over his household. And the second part tells us what that looks like. Well, he has to give them, the servants, the other servants, their portion of food at the proper time. In other words, he just has to be a good manager. He has to take the responsibility that the master gave him and not take advantage of it. Continuing verse 44. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat 
and to drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. So the unfaithful servant is doing the opposite. They're both servants appointed by the master over his household, but one describes, but the one described here is not caring for the servants because he's beating them, in case that wasn't clear. And he is living in luxury at the expense of the other servants. Continue in verse 47. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved the beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And to whom he they entrusted much, they will demand all the more. So here we see a distinction between those who have more knowledge and those who have less knowledge, specifically knowledge of the master's will. And our judgment as Christians will be in part based on our knowledge and what we do with it. So the implication of this is, I think, obviously, that leaders in the church, those who teach, are going to be judged with greater strictness. They'll be held accountable, especially if they're unfaithful. So who is Jesus speaking to? This is very important, and I really want to emphasize this. So first, in the context of the first century, Jesus is teaching the disciples. Prior to the passage, Luke explains that Jesus is teaching while a crowd gathered around them, but the audience is not the crowd. Verse 1, chapter 12 says, In the meantime, so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples first, Okay, he's teaching the disciples. Then in first thir- verse 13, someone thinks Jesus should settle his family, family inheritance uh, problems, and Jesus rebukes him. Then he continues teaching his disciples. Luke writes, and he said to his disciples. Okay, he's teaching his disciples. Then after the passage we just read, in verse 54, Luke indicates that Jesus was now also saying to the crowds. So we can conclude in the first century Israel, he was teaching Jesus' disciples. Those who walked and talked with Jesus, witnessed his teaching and his miracles, wrote the New Testament. He wasn't teaching this to pagans. He wasn't teaching this to the Pharisees or the Sadducees or those who just showed up to see what the fuss was about. He was teaching this to Peter, to Matthew, to Thomas, to James. That should cause us to pay close attention. Secondly, He's teaching this to Christians in all places and all times, to you and me. The teaching of the parable implies this reality. So how how do we know this? So first, there's a common theme just in the entire New Testament of servant, service, and slavery to Christ, period. Meaning that first century Christians understood the relationship with God, at least in part, as a servant-master relationship. The Greek word for servant used here is doulos, and it's used consistently throughout the New Testament to describe a Christian's relationship to God. So, for example, Paul, in all of his letters, refers to this. Um, In the letters to the Romans, Philippians, and to Titus, he introduced himself as Paul, a servant of Christ. In his letter to the Galatians, the Colossians, both letters to the Corinthians, to Timothy, he refers to himself and other Christians as servants of Christ or of God. James, Peter, and Jude, in their letters, they all introduce themselves as servants of Jesus Christ. And in Revelation, written by John, he introduces the book as a revelation of Jesus Christ to show his servants 
the things that must soon take place. So there's countless other examples I could go on and on. The second reason we should understand servants in this parable as Christians is because the parable simply assumes this to be the case. At the end of verse 46, one of the hardest verses to read, Jesus describes the punishment of the disobedient servant. He says, he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. There's two groups of people here. The servants, whether faithful or unfaithful, and the unfaithful. Now, the Greek word for unfaithful here is better translated, I would say, as unbelieving. The NIV translates it this way. And so I would go with that. In every case that it's used, it's referring to either the unsaved or unbelievers. And so I think we should use that translation. Um, So then the disobedient servant was not part of the unbelieving because of his mismanagement, but now he's put with the unbelieving. R.C. Sproul, commenting on this passage, said the following. This is where it gets scary. The one who we cut in two will have been a poor steward, was obviously one who professed the faith. He was not numbered with the unbelievers. He was not a rank pagan. He did not distance himself from church and the things of God. The poor steward was probably in church every Sunday. Maybe he even taught Sunday school. Possibly he was the pastor who gave no real commitment to the stewardship entrusted to him. When the, pa- when the master comes back, he not only cuts him in two, but he sends him out to be numbered with the unbelievers. Because, beloved, an unfaithful steward is an unbeliever. He continues, You cannot have saving faith and live like the unfaithful steward. You can pretend to have saving faith. You can profess to have saving faith. But you're altogether unconverted and on your way to hell. Not only will the poor steward be numbered with the unbeliever on the day of judgment, but his judgment will be worse. The faithful servant represents the genuine Christians, and the unfaithful servants represent so-called The so-called Christian was me. I was this person. Which is why I so badly want to warn you this this evening. I had a Christian family, a Christian home, Christian school, church every Sunday, but unrepentant sin through Monday and Saturday. If you're here this, this evening because you profess to know Jesus, he's teaching this to you. Not your atheist or agnostic brothers or siblings or whoever, this is being taught to the Christian. And so we should read this likewise and hear this warning as Bible-believing, Jesus-professing Christians. Unfortunately, there's a lot of passages that we can read and make interpretive errors or application errors. And one of the most common errors is putting ourselves in place of the subject where we ought not to and preventing ourselves from being the subject when we ought to. So here I think, we often put ourselves in the place of the faithful servant and not the unfaithful servant. Consider this. Christ would not have said, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few if the majority are the faithful servant. I have found among my secular friends, they all think they're going to heaven. What funeral have you been to where this is not the case. If the residents of hell and heaven are based on where people believe they should go after they die, hell will be empty. But of course, it is not only those outside the church doors that are so deceived. No. 
Jesus taught this to his disciples, one of which betrayed him. We often dismiss and ignore the power and intelligence of the devil. Do not forget that the devil disguises himself as an angel of light. He wants to deceive the non-Christians in thinking that they don't need Christ to enter paradise. And he wants to deceive professing Christians in thinking they have Christ when they actually do not. Sometimes it's through the church doors that the devil wants us to go, but no further. We love passages like, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will be saved. Or Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. These are beautiful, amazing words. But we rarely stop to think, Am I truly believing? Or am I in Christ? So what's the point of the passage? There's two warnings. The first is that all of mankind will be judged based on what they know of God's will and what they do with that knowledge. And two, we need to be ready for when the Son of Man comes, for it will be in an hour we do not expect. We'll comment on the first and then on the second. The concluding verses that we read today Make, make it clear. The servant who knew his master's will but did not act or get ready will receive a severe beating. And the one who did not know his will but deserved, what, but, but deserved a beating will get a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Dante, a famous Italian poet and writer of the Divine Comedy, not an actual comedy for those unfamiliar with it, describes his journey through nine circles of hell. It's called the Inferno. The ninth and deepest circle was reserved for the devil himself. But the eighth, the second deepest, he reserved for so-called Christians, whom squandered their responsibility and knowledge in exchange for wealth, women, and personal gain. They were hypocrites. While Dante's Inferno is not a physically accurate depiction of hell, quite far from it, I imagine, the symbolic nature accurately placed virtuous pagans in a place called Limbo, and just above the first circle of hell. I don't know if I agree with that, but take it up with Dante. And the leaders of the church, in fact, the highest leader of the church, the Pope himself, he put next door to the devil. And I believe his imagery was inspired from passages like this. This is why Jesus says to some of the cities in Israel that rejected him in Luke 10, 13, Woe to you, for if the mighty works were done in you, sorry, if the, if the, if the mighty works had been done in Tyre, Tyre and Sidon, they would have been repented long ago. This is why James warns his readers, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, the example of the Pope is, is very distant to us, and his immorality to our generation is obvious. So it's easy to dis dismiss the villains of yesterday as hell-bound heretics. But the villains of today, even if of ourselves, often go unnoticed. So there's, there's two ro uh, possible responses to the knowledge-based judgment in the end times. 
One response might be, well, good thing I don't know a whole lot about God's will. That's the response you might hear from a typical teenage boy, but it's the thinking that willful ignorance will get you off the hook. If, if I don't know the speed limit, I can honestly tell the cop that I didn't know and he might have mercy on me, so I'm just not going to look to see what the speed is. If I don't know what the law is, I can honestly tell the judge I didn't know, so you avoid checking the law. To which any righteous judge will respond, you have a responsibility to know. And God's response will be no different. Sometimes law codes are difficult to read. I've tried. I can't be a lawyer. Sometimes speed limit signs aren't posted where they should be. Or they've been stolen by that same teenage boy from earlier. But God has clear signs. Don't avoid them. This leads to the second possible response. You might say, oh, I just won't become a teacher. I just won't become a leader. Because who wants to be judged more strictly? Who wants that? I thought that one. But this is like knowing God's will and then hiding it and not doing anything with it. Passages like these aren't meant to be a warning against acquiring knowledge of God's will or a warning against becoming leaders and teachers. Rather, passages like these are a wake-up call to take those pursuits seriously. And even though it's mostly Mark, Gary, and Zach who preach and teach here, everyone leads in some way. You're leading your children, your friends, your students, your coworkers, your brothers, your sisters. We all have an obligation to learn God's will and to teach God's will. That will look different for everyone, okay? We're not all called to be pastors, but we are all called to know God's will and to teach eventually. Martin Luther, defending Christian education, compares the Christians of his own time to the early church fathers, and he says the following regarding the study of Scripture. What great toil and effort it costs them to gather up a few crumbs, while with half the labor, almost without any labor at all, we can acquire the whole loaf. Oh, how their effort puts our indolence to shame. Yes, how sternly God will judge our lethargy and ingratitude. Old Testament scholar Jason DeRoshi comments on this. He says, if Martin Luther said this in his time, how much more true they are today. The least knowledgeable of us has been given a lot. In the time before the printing press, and arguably even after, Bibles were hard to come by. Today, I would bet most of us have more than one in our house and probably more than one translation. We have more time in our day and in our week for downtime than any other culture or people group in the history of mankind. We have lights to read at night, computers in our pocket with every English translation at our fingertips, Greek and Hebrew dictionaries, a near infinite amount of commentaries and books about the Bible. We have, I assume, one of the highest literacy rates in human history. Everyone can read. And if you can't, we got tons of audio Bibles. And you can even pick different options for the voice and background music. It's hard to pick. We have a unique opportunity, every one of us, to study and learn and to come to know who God is. God has given us a lot of signs, and you can know his will. Many of you already know God's will, so what are you doing with it? I think if we're being honest, many of us, including myself, put our knowledge on the shelf, so to speak. For example, we... We know that all mankind deserves to die 
because of sin, but we rarely share the gospel with those who are perishing. We know that we ought to care for the fatherless and the widow, but we end up on the sidelines of those causes. We know that we ought to fight for those being led to the slaughter, but thousands, possibly millions of children are killed every year in our country and we don't bat an eye. The second point of the passage. Be ready for when the Son of Man comes, because he's coming soon. It's perhaps hard to imagine that Jesus Christ is coming back soon, if we're being honest. After all, it's been 2,000 years since he came, the first time. And as I read various authors in history, there's a common thread of opinion among people that they always think he's coming in their lifetime, but he hasn't. We don't know the day or the hour, but it shouldn't matter. Let's pretend you knew the date. Let's pretend that at the end of Revelation, it read in big black bold letters, Jesus is coming back July 16th, 2073. That would mean that Christ is coming back in 50 years. In 50 years, like a scroll, the sky will be peeled back, the Son of Man will come down, the new heavens and the new earth will, uh, will come, the old will pass away, and we will be held to account to God, as Romans 14, 12 says. Each of us will give account to himself, to God. Now, this is my point. I'm 30. Statistically, I will meet Jesus in 50 years. Many of you are over 30 and will statistically meet him sooner. Regardless of when Jesus comes back, we will meet him very soon. So what are you doing to get ready to meet Jesus? The essence of Christianity is not an expensive hobby. It's not a social club. It's not, a, it's not good parenting. It's not bad behavior insurance. It's not an investment. We're not Christians because we'll get to see our, our relatives one day. I have three concluding thoughts. First, I focus a good portion of today's sermon on the judgment of God and his wrath on the unfaithful servant. I would not do this passage justice if I did not talk about the blessing of the faithful servant. I want to point out that the faithful servant doesn't deserve his reward. There's two rewards described. The first is in Luke 12, 44. He says, he will set him over all his possessions. This is like comparable to putting in your nine to five, week after week, getting paid for it, Then the owner of the company comes to your work, sees you doing your job, then hands you the keys to the company. You don't deserve that. Second reward. A few verses earlier in Luke 12, 37, he says, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. So not only does Jesus metaphorically give you the keys to the company, he puts on your apron, makes you dinner, and does your job for you. Are you kidding me? That's not even considering the fact that the faithful servant messes up once in a while. He's not perfect. No one's without sin. Second concluding thought. It appears that the faithfulness of the servant is the deciding factor in his salvation. It appears to be a work-based salvation. And I want to clearly dispel our tendency to think like that. 
This is the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They focused on rules so much, they created rules to prevent breaking the rules. And they lost sight of the intention of the original command to love your neighbor and to love God. We don't want to fall into that error because we are prone to think that way. Tim Keller relayed a conversation he had with a woman who had grown up in the church where all the focus was on the rules. Don't drink, don't dance, don't do this, don't do that. As opposed to, you're saved by faith and grace alone. The woman asked Keller, why why was this so common in my church? Keller threw the question back at her and said, well, why do you think so? She responded, well, if you're saved by works, there's a limit to what God can ask of you. You're like a taxpayer. He can ask certain things of you, but not anything. But if you're saved by grace, then there's no limit to what he can ask of you. We owe him everything. But here's the catch. We can never pay him back. In 1 Corinthians, Paul, referring to himself, says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, other disciples. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So God saves us by grace. And then each work we do in faithfulness towards him, he provides grace for us to do that. So back to the faithful servant who was just doing his job. First, he is rewarded with the possessions of the master. Then he is served by the master. But it was the master that gave him the ability to do his job. And then my final concluding thought is I want to address the brutal language that Jesus uses and the reality of hell, which he describes. But I hear Jackie and uh, Mark are teaching on this soon, so maybe I'm just going to punt it to them. No. I do have something to say, though I don't think I have time to respond appropriately. So I'll say two things. First, I want to point out that the passage, or sorry, the punishment of the unfaithful servant was just. In the world of this parable, he beat his servants, and he will receive a just punishment. He was likewise beaten. That's justice. We can have confidence that all of mankind will be judged by a perfect judge who knows all and everything we've done. And then second, I'm going to give a little word picture of what Christ has done for us, even though we deserve hell. I think it will be helpful. So imagine, if you can, the president of the United States or imagine a billionaire. Imagine either of them went to some no-name tribe in the middle of the Gobi Desert or some other remote place, and they took their private jet or Air Force One, and and maybe they parachuted down or something, and they find the tribe, and they go to a a child in the tribe, and not a very popular child. In fact, this child's a bit of a jerk. He's a bully, and he always messes things up. Nobody really likes him. And the billionaire goes, well, hey, listen, I'm going to take your place, and you're going to take my place. And the kid goes back to America, and he inherits his estate. He gets all his wealth, all his prestige, his position, and possessions. If this was in the news, we wouldn't believe it. We'd say, you're making this up. 
You are the child. I am the child. We are the bully on the playground who takes pleasure in slamming another child's face in the mud. We go home and treat our parents with disrespect. We are sinners who freely choose to blaspheme the name of Christ for the sake of whatever fancies us at the moment. Money, toys, new vehicles, comfort, sex, pornography, video games, Netflix, concerts, friends, girlfriends, retirement. We sacrifice our souls on the altars of these idols every single day. Now Christ is the billionaire, but he's not an entrepreneur or a philanthropist who attempts to correct his moral failures and missteps by giving a little charity every once in a while to those less fortunate. No, he spoke the world into existence. And its continued existence depends completely and utterly upon him. That is the one who came down. We often become numb to the fact that the God of the universe came down to us. Now, God could have come with roaring thunder and an army of angels on either side. But he came as a man, a little baby. He was born into a Jewish nation, a nation that was semi-great for maybe 440 years during the reign of King Solomon. He could have been born into a great nation, but no, he was born into a small nation in the midst of their occupation by the Romans. He could have been born in the line of Herod, the king of the time, but no. He could have been born to a high priest. He could have been a high priest, but no, he was born to a woman who might have been regarded as a harlot and an adulterer for her pregnancy. His dad was no more than a carpenter. Sure, he was in the line of David, but it wasn't a unique attribute. He could have rose to prominence and led the Jewish nation to conquer the Roman Empire, conquer the world. But he taught sinners and had fishermen and tax collectors as his disciples. He could have lived a long life, but at the age of 33, only three years after his ministry began, he was whipped to the point that his flesh was torn from his body. He was stripped naked and nailed to the cross, specifically designed to humiliate and create as much pain as possible. He was mocked, humiliated, and received no funeral. And as if that was not enough, he descended into hell for us and took the punishment that we deserve. And all we need to do is seek him. And if we seek him, we will find him. That's a promise. And in the end of time, when the judgment of mankind is underway, we will be counted as righteous because of what he did. And we will be given new, uncorrupted, uncorruptible bodies, a free gift. We'll be co-rulers, living in eternal, unending joy with no pain. And yet, some of us still look at Jesus and think, if I'm given grace, I'll just do what I want. The master's delayed in coming. I'll get good some other time. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Be ready. The Son of Man is coming. Shall we pray? Father, 
We're helpless without you. We want to honor you with our bodies. We want to refrain, remain faithful to the end. So help us. Give us grace as you gave Paul grace to know your will and to act accordingly. As we go into this week, remind us of the price you paid for us. Help us live as the faithful servant so that you may find us managing your possessions faithfully when you come. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brother. You know, um, just before we rush off tonight, you know, I'd invite you guys to stay and to chat. And if there's anyone here who's, you know, unsure, uh, if you are ready to meet Christ, you know, I'd invite you and encourage you to stay and talk with one of us. We'd be happy to, to pray with you. You know, I think ultimately one of our goals would be that you wouldn't leave this place before you knew for sure that you were secure and ready to meet the Lord. We don't know what tomorrow brings, and we don't know what day or hour he will come back. And so thank you, brother, again for that. And I would just encourage you all, before you rush off, we'd welcome you guys to, uh, to stick around. Okay, God bless.